So very much welcome everybody to this first in a series of seven podcasts accompanying the e-learning material that I hope that you have already taken part of for the first case, the first area that we are going to discuss. It will be about iron deficiency. I'm happy to say because it's a favorite topic of mine. And um, this first time we'll talk about uh, cardiac failure. Now, you may ask yourself, how can we have seven um, podcasts and seven cases uh, on iron deficiency alone? Well, we need to say from the very start that um, there has been a broadening of the, com of the concept of iron deficiency within the last 10, 15 years. So there will be much more to discuss than just the old time, classical, pure iron deficiency anemia. Um, I am uh, Gunnar Birgvall, Professor of Hematology at Uppsala, Sweden, and I have a long-term interest in erythropoiesis and iron. started research on erythropoietin in the 80s, and uh, as later also worked with myeloproliferative disorders. So each time I will be the host of all these podcasts, and each time there will be uh, an expert by my side. And today we have Antonio Almeida from Portugal. And I will ask you, Antonio, to present yourself. Good morning. Thank you very much, Gunnar. It's really a pleasure to be here and to participate in these podcasts. Um, as Gunnar said, my name is Antonio Almeida. I'm a professor of hematology in Lisbon in Portugal. Uh, my main interest is our chronic and acquired anemias. And within this, I also include myelodysplasias, but also uh, other acquired anemias such as iron deficiency, vitamin B12 deficiencies, hemolytic anemias, etc. I work in a large general hospital in Lisbon, so we see a large number of patients with all sorts of hematological complaints, and iron deficiency is becoming an increasing problem in many areas of medicine. And this is a particularly important topic for us to address today. Very good, thank you. So we will get right into the topic, but first we need to say a little bit about um, the definition of iron deficiency. Uh, you know, the definition of, of classical absolute iron deficiency is a lack of iron in the stores, as well as a low TSAT. But the wider concept includes also functional iron deficiency that we will go deeper into later, which means that there is a deficiency of iron within the tissues, uh, even though there may be uh, good stores. So we will get into details of these mechanisms later. But with that background, we can start talking about uh, cardiac um, insufficiency and uh, the anemia and iron deficiency um, prevalence in, in uh, this condition. So what, what is your take on that? What about the, the prevalence and incidence of iron deficiency in cardiac heart failure? Antonio. Thank you, Gunnar. I think that's a very important point. Uh, as I was saying in, in my presentation introduction, I think we are increasingly gathering knowledge about iron homeostasis and about the importance of iron in many diseases. And cardiac failure is one of those diseases. It's now been estimated that about 
30 to a half of patients that are hospitalized with cardiac failure have functional iron deficiency. So this is a huge number if we compare it to the normal population in which we have about 10% iron deficiency. And even if you look at the elderly population in which we have about 20% iron deficiency, here we're talking about half of the population. And this increases with incidence so that the longer patients have chronic heart failure, the more likely they are to have functional iron deficiency. So this has a huge impact. And many studies have shown that even in the absence of anemia, functional iron deficiency in this context, in the context of cardiac failure, is associated with increased morbidity and mortality. So I think this is a very critical problem for us to raise awareness, but also to be able to address properly and to learn how to investigate and treat. Getting back to the prevalence, um, is it... Um a clear connection between how severe the cardiac deficiency is and how high the percentage of patients with iron deficiency you find? Well, there have been studies that have shown that patients with more severe uh, heart failure have also a higher incidence of iron deficiency. And above all, they also have deeper iron deficiency. But often, I think one of the biggest problems is our problem as doctors that we focus on the main clinical problem of the patient and do not investigate the accessory problems. And so patients who are relatively well and have slight anemia are far more likely to be diagnosed with iron deficiency than patients that have severe cardiac failure and very often the iron deficiency is overlooked. And so it is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, but I do think that investigation is at the heart of the diagnosis. Yeah. And we should stress also, because we have mostly talked now about patients who come into the hospital or hospitalized because of their cardiac heart insufficiency, but also in the polyclinic, when you see the patients coming back regularly, there is a high number of patients also with iron deficiency there. Absolutely. And I, I, I do feel that it's very important to stress two factors. First of all, that iron deficiency and cardiac failure can occur without anemia. And even without anemia, it has an important impact on, on symptoms and also on morbidity and mortality. And so patients who are not anemic should be routinely screened for iron deficiency. Yeah. The other important factor that I think we should highlight, um, and I'm sure you agree with me, Gunnar, is that ferritin on its own is not enough to diagnose iron deficiency in this population because very often cardiac failure causes chronic inflammation and chronic inflammation will raise the ferritin. And so patients will have a normal or sort of low normal ferritin level and have functional iron deficiency. So transferrin saturation is critical to be able to diagnose these patients accurately. Yes, and I think this will be made very clear when we talk a little bit more now about the, the mechanism of functional iron deficiency. The fact that it has been found now that inflammatory diseases of all kinds, cancer, autoimmune disease, et cetera, et cetera, where the inflammation is an important part of the disease, you get a, a disturbance of the, the iron metabolism with an increase in the cytokines that are produced and elevated. They give an increase in the protein hepcidin produced by the liver, which in turn makes several things to happen. Uh, first of all, there is a reduction of ferroportin, which is 
the only compound that actually can export iron out of the cell. And when you have a reduction of that, iron will stay within the macrophages. And there it gets, uh, um, uh, it gets caught, so it's not available, which means that the transferrin saturation is lower. Less iron is transported from the macrophages to the bone marrow, for instance, but also to the myocardium and, and all the cells that need iron. So the drop in transferrin saturation is really a measure of the biological availability of iron. It's a measure of the functional pool of iron. And therefore it's actually much more, as you say, important than ferritin in this situation. So I hope this link is clear, the increased uh, cytokines due to inflammation, the reduction in ferroportin uh, through the upregulation of hepcidin. There's also a reduction in, in uh, the amount of iron that you take up because the enterocytes also get an, uh, an increase of ferritin and iron in them. And uh, absorption is partly determined by how much iron you have in the enterocytes. So that is reduced as well. And therefore also less iron comes into the, the organism itself. So there you are with this uh, mechanism of how this happens. So mean, this means that when we diagnose iron deficiency in these patients, we use some rather simple means. We use the ferritin of course, uh, because sometimes you will find that it is actually rather low. But first of all, you, you use the transfer saturation. So in your clinic, what, what do you use for the, the diagnosis of functional iron deficiency? Well, I, I think that this is a very important point because I think this is where most of the time we misdiagnose or we actually miss the iron deficiency. As you were stressing, ferritin is not enough. Ferritin will be artificially raised because of chronic inflammation. And so I regularly use transferrin saturation. I also think that it's, it, I mean, the mechanism you described of, of uh, basically it's the mechanism of anemia of chronic disease in which we get an increase in IL-6, which increases hepcidin, which in turn reduces iron absorption is very prevalent in iron deficiency and other chronic diseases uh, in cardiac failure as well. But I think it's very important that we also recognize other causes of, of iron deficiency and cardiac failure. One of them is reduced absorption. First of all, because patients feel unwell and need to eat less and have a poor diet because they have cardiac failure. But also there is gut edema in cardiac failure. The edema is not only in the lungs and in the tissues, but there is gut edema. And that in turn will increase the gut wall thickness and will impair iron absorption. And then we must not forget that there is also effects on other organs. And the cardiorenal anemia syndrome, which has been well described, is a very important mechanism here in which we get reduced absorption of iron because of renal impairment. And so we have a sort of a vicious circle between chronic heart failure, chronic renal failure, and anemia of chronic disease, reduced absorption, all of which contribute to iron deficiency in these patients. Yes, and it's interesting that these thoughts and these findings were already presented early uh, in this century. Uh, and that was presented mainly by nephrologists, which means that it really didn't land within the cardiology uh, population. 
which means that although these things have been known since 2001, 2002, um, they have really not been worked upon very much by cardiologists. And I think the cardiac renal uh, syndrome is not very well known or very, very well um, uh, examined in our patients, in the cardiac patients. Do you agree with that? I, I totally agree. I, I, do, I do feel there is a, a lack of awareness, which is very important to be brought out. And, and in fact, this is what leads to what we were saying before, to this misdiagnosis, underdiagnosis of iron deficiency. So running the risk of repeating ourselves, I do feel it's very important to measure transfer and saturation. And if the transfer and saturation is less than 20%, then this means that there is functional iron deficiency. Even with a normal ferritin, there is functional iron deficiency. And this has an impact on, a clinical impact on the patients. This means that even in the absence of anemia, there'll be an increase in fatigue, therefore an increase in the symptoms that normally patients with cardiac failure have. And also, it will mean that it's more difficult to diagnose because there's no anemia and because the ferritin is normal. So a huge awareness of all these mechanisms, especially cardiorenal syndrome, as you were mentioning, is very important. Actually, I have been working with functional iron deficiency for, for many years in hematological patients. And there are some sophisticated ways of making the diagnosis. But um, those are not really um, relevant in, in all settings because they're not available to uh, everybody. So I use a very simple method. And I say that with a low TSAT, that low transfer saturation below 20, and a normal uh, low or even elevated serum ferritin, you still can diagnose uh, uh, functional line deficiency. You don't need the microcytosis. It's sometimes there, but not at all, always. Um, so uh, the point is that in order to get iron from the stores to the cells that need it, either it's in the brain, the heart, or the bone marrow, it has to pass through plasma. And that affects transfer and saturation. So the transfer and saturation low, that means that there is a lack of iron in the organs that need it. So you can actually rely on that very much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So finally, the, um, the knowledge about this has reached uh, cardiologists. And there are actually recommendations concerning this area, uh, European recommendations uh, uh, that I hope reach all cardiologists. Can you comment on those? Well, I, I think that that's exactly the point is because this is so difficult to diagnose and very often the symptoms are so overlapping with those symptoms of chronic heart failure and with the symptoms of, uh, of, of renal insufficiency, et cetera, that very often the symptoms that patients relate to are attributed to the baseline disease. And these guidelines that have come out really stress the importance of assessing not only anemia, but also iron status in patients with heart failure. And so it's basically, they should be assessed at least once or twice a year in the routine follow-up in outpatient, not just when they are admitted to hospital with acute exacerbation of cardiac failure. 
but it should also be assessed every time there is a decompensation, because it could be at the origin of the decompensation a precipitating factor. And it also should be assessed when patients are discharged from hospital. So after a period of hospitalization, where inflammation goes up, where there's reduced absorption, where there's more gut edema, it is important to reassess the iron status and make sure that patients either are replete or that they receive treatment when appropriate. The other very important factor is that patients should be, when patients are detected to have functional iron deficiency, they should, we should not just attribute it to chronic inflammation and gut edema and cardiac failure. But we mustn't forget that all these patients are on non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, aspirin, uh, and this may have in profound impacts on the gut, cause chronic bleeding, and as a result, lead to iron deficiency. So these patients should also be actively investigated, as we do with all other patients with iron deficiency, looking for bleeding points in the gut. Yes, and then it's time to, to try to look at what we actually achieve by giving these patients iron. We'll get back later to the form of treatment that we should give. But first of all, looking at the results, um, what can we achieve by repleting the, the iron stores and the iron situation of patients with cardiac heart insufficiency? Well, there's been several studies that have looked at this, and the studies are very, very promising. The, the simple improvement in iron status in one study that included uh, about 450 patients, so that the improvement in iron status improved all parameters, global patient reported uh, outcomes, so symptoms, also six minute walking distance, New York Heart Association class, quality of life. So it has an important impact on symptoms and on function. And therefore, it really should be investigated and treated whenever possible. Yeah. Actually, there have been so many studies. Since the first studies were published around 2001, 2002, and they were all usually also combined with renal insufficiency. When we put together all the, the studies that have investigated how much you improve uh, as a patient with cardiac insufficiency, it's quite impressive. Um, the improvement in, in walking distance, in uh, uh, symptomatic uh, uh, status, in uh, uh, how many days in the hospital the patients stay, etc. Um, there are several hundred studies by now that have shown such effects. And one landmark study was, of course, the one that showed that this was not dependent on whether the patient had an anemia that was corrected or not. It was enough having the, the iron deficiency that was corrected. So a question to you, um, can you think of any other drug the last 20 or 30 years treating cardiac insufficiency, which has improved the patients as much as intravenous iron? Well, it's a very good point. I think probably it's difficult to select one single drug that has such a marked effect. All other drugs are used in combination from diuretics to aspirin to uh, um, to nitrates, etc. So the, this one single drug that has such a profound effect is really impactful. And actually, most of those you mentioned have been used for 40 or 50 years. So yeah. this is new in spite of being rather old, already 20 years old. So uh, should we mention something about the, um, the 
level of ferritins that is proposed in, in uh, the guidelines, they tend to be a bit confusing. So maybe we should mention something. Yes, I mean, I think I'd like to go back to highlighting that the best way to diagnose and to assess in this context, the iron status is through transferrin saturation. But having said that, there are not many recommendations about levels of ferritin. And we should be aware that the levels of ferritin that are expected are higher than those that we use in the healthy population. And so if we have a serum ferritin of over under 100 milligrams per liter, then clearly the patients are iron deficient. But if they are between 100 and 300, but with a low transferrin saturation, then the patient is considered to be iron deficient functionally, even without um, the levels. And then when we treat these patients, it is very important that we achieve a normal ferritin and transferrin saturation level. And this should be monitored regularly. So both levels need to be normal, not just ferritin. Yes, and you have a problem there with these patients because so the symptoms of a severe cardiac insufficiency and iron deficiency are rather similar. The main problem being fatigue. So it's hard to know whether um, the fatigue that a patient has comes mostly from the cardiac disease or from the iron deficiency. And the only way to, to find out what it is, is actually to improve the, the iron situation, to correct the, the iron deficiency. And when you've done that, then you know how much is also still depending on the, the cardiac disease itself. Indeed, and that is why it's so important to routinely monitor iron status in these patients. Yeah. So should we go on to looking at what kind of treatment we should give them? You notice that I said intravenous iron. So what's the story there? Well, I think there have been several studies that have shown that oral iron in this population is uh, very difficultly absorbed and has very little impact. And I think if we look at the causes for iron deficiency in this population, we can immediately understand why. If we're saying that we have patients that have gut edema and reduced absorption and also increased hepcidin levels, which also inhibit absorption of iron because they internalize ferroportin and so do not allow the transport of iron across the enterocytes. If we give oral iron, most of it will not be absorbed. And not only will it not be absorbed, oral iron is irritating for the intestine in many cases. And so it cannot actually cause a malabsorption syndrome like uh, in, in these patients. And what is recommended is that intravenous iron be given to these patients. And this is in several uh, recommendations. The intravenous iron formulation uh, can vary depending on availability from sucrose to carboxymaltose, but they are all effective and should be administered. And then the effect monitored after about a month or two. Yes, I agree. You know, I've been following the, the appearance of all these new intravenous formulations for iron. And in many different diseases, they've been shown to be very similar. So there's no reason to suspect that one is more effective or less effective than the other. Uh, concerning this problem of uh, oral versus intravenous iron in these patients, it's quite interesting because there's really no explanation why intravenous iron works. 
So we have to rely on the facts from the studies, the practical aspect. It has been shown that intravenous is much more effective. In terms of the doses, in hematology at least, I often use a rather large dose to be sure that they have iron for some time. And I don't bother with these formulas, these uh, ways of calculating the iron uh, that you find uh, from the producers. Uh, I think that is uh, too much uh, unnecessary work. So I just give them a large dose, follow ferritin, and see to it that they are repleted. How do you do? Indeed, uh, I'm glad you say that because that is my pragmatic approach as well. Uh, I normally use carboxymaltose just because of uh, day hospital time, it's much quicker to admin administrate. Uh, and I generally use a thousand milligrams uh, in a single dose to replete the iron levels as much as possible. Because even though um, you are right, even though the, the mechanism of oral iron not being absorbed is largely due to infl inflammation and chronic inflammation will also inhibit the utilization of intravenous iron. It is also true that a large enough dose does get stored. And then when the inflammation is less when cardiac failure is controlled, it can then be reutilized. And so this enables the patients to go for longer without needing replacement. Another important factor that I'm often asked from cardiologists and renal colleagues is whether we should add erythropoietin. Um, there has been no firm evidence that adding erythropoietin to IV iron has really granted significant improvement to the patients. Some studies show a trend to improvement in quality of life and reduced hospitalization, but the results are very mixed. And I must say that in general, if the reticular site count is reasonable, I, which is in most cases, I will not use erythropoietin. I don't know what your practice is, Gunnar. Well, I'm, I partly agree. I also, uh, in cancer, well, we have the same question, should we, uh, should we use erythropoietin? I give them intravenous iron first to see whether I get a response. If I do get a response with only uh, intravenous iron, that's fine. Then I don't need the erythropoietin. And we have shown actually that you get a response even in cancer anemia with only uh, iron in many of the patients. On the other hand, if I don't get a response, how do I know then that they don't need uh, erythropoietin? And I must say that even since 2001, there have been a number of rather small studies showing that with a combination of erythropoietin and iron, you get good results. And of course, we don't know for certain then whether it was just the iron or it also was the, the increase in hemoglobin. But to my sorrow, there has not been any large studies with the combination. The latest studies have all been with only one of them, uh, erythropoietin. And that seems to me a, a very strange way of designing a study. How can you expect erythropoietin alone to be effective when you have a functional iron deficiency? It doesn't matter how you increase the potent levels uh, produced by the kidneys. When you have the iron locked up and uh, the, it's not available for erythropoiesis. So I really wait for some larger studies uh, comparing only iron with uh, iron plus erythropoietin. And those have not yet been published. So no. I, I would expect that in those patients who don't respond to iron alone, uh, 
uh, you still, if the patient has a low hemoglobin, of course, could have an extra uh, help by giving also erythropoietin. Yes, and, I, and I, again, I think it's difficult to make firm recommendations, but certainly uh, we need to have a holistic approach. And patients who have renal failure associated with cardiac failure may benefit from erythropoietin, especially those who have a lower reticulocyte count may also be more likely to benefit. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so I think there's one name we should mention here, Stilverberg, uh, who is uh, from Israel. He was the one who actually started this whole field with his publications uh, in the beginning of, of 2000. Um, he is basically working with nephrology. And I am afraid that's one reason why it has uh, taken so long, long time to penetrate. But he has been kept publishing uh, for many, many years, uh, lots of papers uh, about uh, these effects in the heart and also the cancer, the cardiac renal uh, syndrome. Uh, so I think it's good to mention his name because he was uh, the first one. So what do you do if um, uh, you monitor the patient, you're treated with iron and you, by the way, we should mention a dose. 1,000 milligrams, 500 milligrams, to the ordinary patient where you are shown a functional iron deficiency and cardiac uh, insufficiency, which dose do you choose as a starting dose? Well, normally I use 1,000 milligrams as a starting dose. So a little bit like we were saying earlier, I think it's quite important to give large doses of iron. I don't necessarily calculate it according to the product description. I use a large dose to make sure that they are properly iron replete and to make sure that they have iron for long enough and don't have to repeatedly receive administration. Yeah, very good. So I think it's time to summarize. What would, you, what would be your summary of what we've been talking about? Well, I think the main message here is awareness and adequate treatment. Awareness that patients with cardiac failure do develop functional iron deficiency and that they must be monitored independently of the presence of anemia. That very often the symptoms of functional iron deficiency are similar to chronic cardiac failure, and therefore we must use careful monitoring with ferritin and transferrin saturation to be able to establish whether or not they have functional iron deficiency. And the second important point is that oral iron is not adequate in these patients, and that they must be treated when they have functional iron deficiency with intravenous iron to improve their function, their uh, iron status and their quality of life. Thank you. A nice summary. So it's time to thank Antonio for your help and expertise in this uh, program. And I would like to um, tell the listeners the whole podcast series, the seven, will be finished within this year. So thank you for today. Have very much. Welcome back. <laughs>